And uh, the sermon, we're going to actually be starting in John chapter 1, but, but don't worry about turning there just yet. And uh, all I want to say about John chapter 1 is that, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a church, you preach through all these topics throughout the course of the year. Sometimes you preach exegetically, which means you go through a, a book or a particular passage. Sometimes you preach topically, so you might talk about grief or anger and what does the Bible have to say about those things. Every now and then I stop and I go, you know what, we just have to get back to Jesus, right? And so that's what this is. John chapter 1 is just really an attempt to get back to Jesus, right? And in light of me sort of making that comment, let me also say this today. You guys are all coming into this room with different emotional uh, weights upon your shoulders. Maybe it's, you know, relational issues you've got. Maybe it's vocational issues you're struggling with. Maybe it's spiritual issues you're struggling with. And you, you come to this room, you've been scrambling to get here on time, you know, maybe you're in a bad mood, maybe you're in the middle of a fight, whatever the case may be. Let me just tell you this, is that uh, God knows that already, surprise, he can read minds, okay, that's part of being God. Uh, but secondly, God isn't the type of God who demands that you get everything right or that you shelve all of those things before you come to him, rather he's a God that actually invites you to bring those things to him in worship, right? So every single one of you that is exhausted this morning, and you're so tired from having to sort of feel like you're having to do this whole thing on your own. For everybody in this room who's just stressed out about a relationship or a project, whatever it is, God is the kind of God who wants you to bring every single one of those things to him, right? He can handle all of your problems. He can handle all of your doubts. He can handle all of your frustrations, and he wants you to bring them to him. And so let me invite you today to take your whole self to him uh, this morning. Now, having said that, uh, again, we're going to turn to John chapter 1, uh, verses 37 through 42 in a minute. But before we do that, let me just take a moment and let's pray. Father, we join together this morning to respond again to your invitation. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this room this morning. And uh, that, that really that we wouldn't be able to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you through the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray for those of us that need peace, that you'll give us peace. Father, I pray that for those of us who need healing, that you'll give us healing. Father, I thank, uh, thank you that you offer those things. For those of us that need to be convicted of sin, I pray that you would convict us of sin. But, Father, at the end of all of these things, I pray that we would remember that our only hope is to turn back to you through your son, Jesus, his perfect life his death, and his resurrection. And so, Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, again, welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. Uh, I've been gone for a couple weeks on vacation, and uh, I'm glad to be back with you. One of the things that we accomplished right before we went on vacation is we got a new car. Now, when I say new car, what I mean by that is the Pierce version of a new car. So it's a 2006 minivan with 130,000 miles on it. To us, that is a new car. And uh, so it was interesting to go through this process, and it actually sort of reminded me of all the different cars I've had over the course of my life. And I thought that it's not enough for me to simply, you know, hoard that, that knowledge and awareness to myself. I needed to share it with somebody. So this morning, we're going to go down a little trip through memory lane, BP's automotive stomping grounds, okay? And so I'm going to show you my first car. My first car, we've got a picture of it right here, 1976 Dodge Colt station wagon, all right? That was my first high school vehicle. Now, again, it kind of speaks for itself, so you think I wouldn't have to say much about it. It had a luggage rack on top. It had mud flaps, because why wouldn't a Dodge Colt station wagon have mud flaps, right? I mean, it's obviously something you're going to use it for. Uh, the fastest the Dodge Colt station wagon ever went was about 62 miles an hour. A buddy of mine and I 
had driven it up into the mountains, and we actually got this big running start down a hill and got up to like 62. It was a fantastic vehicle. You know, needless to say, uh, the girls at Travelers Rest High School, many of them were only interested in me because of my vehicle, right? I mean, you just know that. It did not have air conditioning, and it only had an AM radio. Eventually, my dad put in an eight-track player, which is pretty cool. Again, one of those big chick factors. Anyway, now, <clears throat> the problem with the Dodge Colt station wagon is that... Um, I could never go anywhere without two gallons of water because the radiator, I don't know what was the matter with it, but I constantly had to drive, you know, 20 minutes, fill it up with water, drive 20 minutes, fill it up with water. Otherwise it would overheat. Eventually it just sort of died and I had to get a new vehicle. Now here's what's interesting is I had a choice between two vehicles. Let's start with vehicle A. Vehicle A is in this slide right here. Okay. This this is a Toyota Land Cruiser. On a scale of 1 to 10, it is a 9.5 cool. Like, it's so cool, right? 1200 bucks, sky blue. My dad knew some guy that was selling his. And, uh, and again, I was faced with buying this vehicle. It's just a- a- absolutely the coolest car in the world. That was choice A. Choice B was the next slide. 1982 Mitsubishi Galant, a.k.a. the brown turtle, because it kind of looks like a brown turtle. We call it that. I, as a sophomore in high school, decided the better option was going to be to buy the Brown Turtle, right? Because it had less miles. It was a newer vehicle. Really one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Every single time that I see a Toyota Land Cruiser driving down the road, I'm like, what was I thinking? It was ridiculous. Not only that, but the, the, uh, the Brown Turtle here, I drove through partway through college. And, uh, I think somewhere during my sophomore year, maybe my freshman year, I had to replace the transmission. Okay, that was a bummer. Then I had this thing going where something went wrong on it, and every time, single time I wanted to drive it, I had to get it jump-started off of somebody else's car. Right? I don't know what was wrong with it, but anytime I let somebody borrow it, I handed them not only the keys, but a set of jumper cables. Because I was like, you can drive it, you just need to get somebody to jump it off. Anyway, then finally, after a second transmission went bad, I was like, all right, done with the brown turtle, and I had to get a new car, all right? The next car that I got, pretty cool, right? This is the Bronco 2. I don't remember what year it was. Maybe, I don't know what it was. But, but I drove that through the rest of college, the rest of seminary. It actually was a great car. Eventually, it had to be replaced. But it was more due to sheer disrepair because of my neglect, not because of any mechanical fault with the car. We'll move on. All right. The next car that we got was after Krista and I got married. The 1985 Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra. All right. Let me tell you, this car was awesome fantastic right and so krista this got to be her vehicle right it was just absolutely awesome she got to drive it around um, when we were first married and uh eventually we had to replace the transmission eventually the air conditioning worked out and i I mean went out and i I don't know if we were too poor to get it fixed or what i don't remember what happened but eventually we replaced it because it was just starting to get kind of glitchy and have one little problem after another problem we kind of see where that was headed and and so in turn we got this next vehicle we got the uh, 1994 white Camry, which we still own, by the way. It's sitting in our driveway right now. And uh, eventually, we actually replaced the 1994 white Camry. We got this when Krista was pregnant because she had to drive to work. It had air conditioning. And eventually, we replaced this car and got the next slide, which is the 2000 Camry, which, believe it or not, I am still driving, which Sam Pierce will inherit in about a year and a half. And he'll have to deal with some of the same relational struggles that I had to deal with in high school due to having such a sweet automobile. Okay. Although I will point out it does not have mud flaps or a luggage rack, which so, and it's got like AM, FM radio, so what in the world? Anyway, okay, so I mentioned all these things to say this. Most of you in this room 
have been far enough in your automotive lives at this point in time that you've had a couple different types of vehicles. You've either had a vehicle that started to sort of fail, right? Like it had one thing happen, then another thing happened, then another thing happened, and you could kind of see where it was headed. It was kind of breaking down, and you knew that you were going to have to replace it and get a new vehicle, right? A lot of us have had that, that automotive experience. Some of us have had the same experience that the Gallant had, the Mitsubishi Gallant, the brown turtle had, which is, you know, the transmission utterly and completely goes out. You got to replace it. And then the transmission goes out a second time, and it's just dead on the side of some road in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so you sell it to some shop for 500 bucks for parts, essentially. And the, sort of the car's just not working, right? So, so here's my point. The point is, is this. In life, we try to live life on our own, right? And some of you have been living life on your own, your perspective, your authority, your mission. And you can kind of sit here this morning And you can see it beginning to break down progressively, and you can see where it's headed. Some of you are like the Mitsubishi Gallant. You've tried living under your own authority, with your own perspective, your own mission, and it's just broken down completely. And you sit here this morning with a lifestyle and a mission that has completely failed you, right? In the same way, Jesus, in John chapter 1, is coming to the disciples, and he's coming to them, and he offers them a new life with him because their old lives, their old missions, their old perspectives, their old passions, all of those things are either failing or have failed them. And he calls them and he says, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. Let's listen to the words of John chapter one, verses 37 through 42, beginning in verse 37. When the two disciples heard him, Jesus, or sorry, John the Baptist say this, they followed Jesus because John the Baptist had said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These two disciples were probably Andrew, we know, probably John, the author of the book of John. Anyway, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want, right? And, and this, you know, this isn't just a, hey, what do you guys want? This is a, hey, what do you want from life? What are you seeking? What do you desire? They didn't know how to answer, and so they said this, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John, that is John the Baptist, had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So we're going to take a few minutes this morning. We're just going to talk about what do we see here in John chapter 1. Well, the first thing we see here in John chapter 1 is that Jesus invites these disciples into a new life with him, and that new life begins with a new perspective. So let's go ahead and take a look at the screen here, verses 38 and 39, and, and we'll follow along with these verses. They say this, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying Come, he replied, and you will see. Now, let me call time out here and just say this. Is that Jesus here isn't talking about Andrew and John seeing where he's staying, right? That may sound kind of obvious to the more nuanced of you in the room, but that's not really what he's concerned about. He's not really concerned about taking them over to his apartment and saying, here's our living room. Look at this cool painting I got. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, come and follow me. And you'll actually be able to see the world and life and relationships as God intended for you to see it. We see Jesus doing this all the time in his relationships with people in the New Testament, right? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus talks about birth, right? Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth, but Nicodemus is confused and think, 
thinks that Jesus is talking about physical birth. And that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. We see the woman at the well, and Jesus offers her water. He's talking about spiritual water, but she thinks he's talking about physical water, right? We see the crowds who come to Jesus, and he says, I'm going to offer you bread, the bread of life. And they think that he's talking about, you know, whole grain bread, right? When he's really talking about spiritual bread that nourishes, that sustains over and over again, we see in Scripture that Jesus is talking about something deeper and spiritual and something real. And in the meantime, the other people just misunderstand it completely. This is a case in point. Jesus is saying, if you come to me and you follow me, I'll give you the ability to truly see, to see the world as it is. Now, let me defer really quickly here to a moment or, or shift gears. Let me draw your attention to one of the a movie that came out in 2001, all right? It's not the greatest movie in the world, but it makes the point here. And the movie is Shallow Howl, okay? Shallow Howl came out in 2001. It's got Jack Black and Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, in the movie, the basic theme of the movie is this. Jack Black, the character on the right, who's short and chubby. Nobody make any BP jokes. And um, anyway, he's the guy on the right. But he's a, he's a male chauvinist. And all he does is pursue girls who meet the world's sort of standard of what, you know, maybe physical beauty is, regardless of their, you know, emotional health or their intellectual health or any of these things. That's all he does is chase girls that sort of meet a certain standard of society's sort of image of what beauty is, right? And so he's just an absolute jerk, and the movie does a great job of painting him that way. Well, as the movie progresses, he gets stuck in an elevator with a guy named Tony Robbins. I don't know if any of you know who Tony Robbins is, but he's a motivational speaker. And in the elevator, Tony Robbins hypnotizes him so that all of a sudden, all he can do is see women as they really are, as their hearts are, as their minds are, right? As, as, as they really are sort of inside. And so all of a sudden, what ends up happening is that Uh, Jack Black's character walks around through life, and these women that used to be physically attractive to him, now they're very, very unattractive because he's seeing them for who they really are. And then there are other women that he might not have looked at uh, before, and all of a sudden he sees them, and they're the most beautiful people in the world because he's seeing them as they truly are. Part of the, the idea of the movie is he begins to see the world and relationships as it really is, as it really should be, right? And that's exactly the point that Jesus is talking about here. He spends the years, all these years of his public ministry, attempting to help people to see the world as God created it to be. He he spends his ministry using all these different tools and talks and relationships in order to help people see his father as he really is. And so he, he uses these things called parables. And one of the reasons he gives parables is a parable helps you to sort of see something from a different perspective. Or another way of talking about a parable is it kind of sneaks in the back door of your intellect so that it changes the way that you think. And so he talks about the pearl of great price in, in, in terms of what you should be willing to give up in order to have a relationship with God. He talks about the parable of the lost sheep in order to change the way that people view his father. And he essentially says, guess what? When one person turns back and pursues a relationship with my father, there's a party right? He uses the parable of the prodigal son. And he says, look, all of you guys think that my father is this, you know, gruff old man in heaven with a massive hammer waiting to crush you. But you need to understand that your heavenly father is like a wonderful earthly father who just desires for you to come home. Jesus over and over again is helping his disciples and other people to see the world as it really is. That's the point of the Lord's prayer. You know, if I could make one request for those of you in this room, it would be that you would pray through the Lord's Prayer once every single day. Because what the Lord's Prayer does 
is it takes you down this pathway of beginning to see the world as God sees the world. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, we're all concerned about hallowing our own names. And God says, it's really about my name. You know, thy kingdom come. We're, we're worried about our kingdoms. But as we pray the Lord's Prayer, all of a sudden, we begin to see this world as about God's kingdom, his name, his glory, his honor. When Jesus invites the disciples into a relationship with, with him, he's inviting them to see the world in a different way. And he's inviting us in this room to see the world as his father created it to be as well. The second thing we see in this passage is that when Jesus invites the disciples into this new life with him, he also invites them to have a new authority. Look at verse 39. So, so verse 39 says this. It says, so they went and they saw, again, this is the theme that John brings out, where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon, right? So these guys had been, Andrew and John, we think, had been disciples of John the Baptist, right? He was a, sort of a form of rabbi, and they were following him, right? He pushes them to Jesus and says, that's the real guy you need to be following. They begin to follow Jesus. And education 2,000 years ago was very different than it is today. Education today is you come and sit in a classroom for 50 minutes. It's mostly sort of mind, intellectual type stuff. There was some of that with Jesus, but in the ancient world, when you followed a teacher, you actually quit your life, Right? You quit your other authorities, and you simply followed this teacher. That's what the disciples did. They began to spend the next three years with Jesus. And sure, he talked about intellectual things that would change their mind, but he also talked about their hearts, right? He also talked about their actions. And so all of a sudden, Jesus wasn't simply someone that was unloading intellectual stuff on them, but he was asking them to follow him and that he would be their new authority in life. That's always the call to follow Jesus is that he becomes our new authority. Uh, I actually read uh, a section of an article from a magazine called Kentucky Living. I do not want to get into the fact or or why I was reading a book called Kentucky Living, but just trust me, I found a good uh, illustration in there. Anyway, the illustration is this. Uh, There was an article in this story that told a great story. I'm just going to read a little excerpt from it. It says this, and just stick with me. This is from Christmas of 2013. One night before Christmas 2013, Clay and Velma Likens of Jefferson County, Kentucky, stepped onto their porch and turned off the Christmas lights and saw a large object wrapped in plastic sitting at the end of their driveway. Under the plastic was the wicker chair that had been stolen from their front porch 18 years earlier, along with a note. Now, here's what the note says. To whom it may concern... Approximately 13 to 17 years ago, my husband stole this wicker rocking chair from the porch of this house. I'm ashamed of his behavior, and I'm returning this stolen item. I have since been divorced from my husband and have since been born again. My life has completely changed, and I want to undo any wrongdoing to the best of my ability. I know this chair is not in the same condition as when it was stolen, and I apologize. I now live in another state, Tennessee, and I'm rarely in this vicinity. I realize the cowardly fashion in which I'm returning this, but the reason is obvious. I will not bother you again. Please forgive us sincerely. The article goes on to say that the rocker was placed in the bedroom of this couple along with the letter where it became a treasured keepsake, right? Now, now here's the reason I use this illustration. Is this woman became a believer. She became born again, which is the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 3. And what happens is, 
is that whatever her old authority structure was, whether she was, you know, she gave herself under the authority of her husband or, or she was under her own authority for living however she wanted to live, when she became a believer, all of a sudden, Jesus was her new authority, and it absolutely changed everything. It changed the way that she lived, so much so that she felt compelled to give back this stolen rocking chair from 18 years previous. Now, here's the point. Some of you in this room have been living under your own authority for a long time, right? Some of you uh, have been determining for yourselves what's right, what's wrong, what's good and bad. And as a result, your life, maybe your relational life, maybe your financial life, uh, maybe your emotional life, maybe your spiritual life is a mess, right? It's kind of like those illustrations of the cars. It's just not working. It's breaking down on you, or maybe it's already broken down, What you need to hear this morning is that when God calls you, when Jesus invites you into a new life with him, he invites you to also embrace him as a new authority. And this turning from our old authority to a new authority is usually called repentance. Listen to what J.I. Packer, a theologian, has to say about repentance from Concise Theology. I think I've got the quote on the screen. It says this, The New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. In other words, it's holistic, right? The authority of Jesus over you isn't just intellectual, it's moral, it's volitional, it's all, it's all, everything. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly, mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes, all are involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. In other words, Jesus calls you to to live this new life, and he calls you to embrace him as your new authority. So, So let me say this. Some of you in this room have never made that decision to allow Jesus to be your ultimate authority, right? And as a result, my guess is probably things are unraveling or have unraveled. Others of you in this room this morning, maybe you did embrace Jesus as your authority. Maybe you embraced him as your Lord and your Savior, but maybe there have been little quadrants or little sections of your life that you've refused to give over to him. Maybe it's your speech. Maybe it's a portion of your thought life. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's a particular relationship. And Jesus basically comes along and he says, I don't want just a part of it. I want the whole thing. Uh, When our children were little, Sam, I'm going to owe you money. When Sam was little, he was like a two-year-old little guy. Um, I had a little thing I taught him where uh, I would basically get him to say, do you want a piece of me? Right? So it was really cute to hear a two-year-old boy say, do you want a piece of me? Anyway. And, uh, or no, no, sorry, that's wrong. I would say, do you want a piece of me? I'm getting, I'm botching it. Anyway, I would say, do you want a piece of me? And then Sam was supposed to say back, I want the whole thing. Right? So I would say, you want a piece of me? And he'd say, I want the whole thing. Anyway, so I'm, you know, teaching him these good sort of tactics. Anyway, the point is that Jesus desires to be our entire authority. He wants the whole thing. He wants every bit of your life. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration where he basically says, when you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, we initially think that he's going to take our nice little home and he's going to knock out a wall and make an addition and he's going to renew a bathroom. And in reality, what C.S. Lewis says is that God wants to plow the whole thing down and he wants to build a castle where your nice little ranch home used to exist. Jesus' call to follow him in a new life is a call not only for a new perspective on reality, but it's actually he's calling you to embrace him as your authority over all of your life. Third thing we see in this passage says this, essentially, 
that when Jesus called the disciples into this new life, he was also calling them to a new mission. Listen to verses 40 and 42. They say this, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, right? And so essentially what's happening here is that Jesus is calling all these guys, some of them are fishermen, right? One of them is a tax collector. Uh, Others of them have other, you know, sort of uh, life vocations. We don't know what all of them were doing at the time, but each of them probably, or not probably, each of them definitely had their own mission. And so it may be that, that one of them had a mission that was purely vocational. That was the thing that determined everything else in their life, what was good and bad and true and false and worthy. And it was all about being a fisherman. It was all about being a tax collector. It was all about being what? That was the, the ultimate mission in their life was to, to be a good worker, right? And to do their best at that job. Others of these men that Jesus called to follow him, maybe, maybe they had a philosophical mission. Maybe that's the thing that drove them, that woke them up in the morning, right? And so, you know, for example, the one that was the zealot, Simon the zealot, you know, for him, it was maybe a philosophical mission that drove him every single day. Maybe some others, it was a financial mission, right? Matthew was a tax collector. He had probably switched over to be a tax collector, even though there was, you know, massive uh, cost to doing that because, because money or wealth was the thing that drove him. That was his mission. But when Jesus invites these men to come and follow him, he's not only calling them to have a new perspective. He's not only calling them to ultimately embrace him as a new authority. He's calling them to have a brand new mission for their lives. Does that make sense? He's saying your mission all of a sudden is to invite people into a relationship with God through me. It's what we see happening over and over and over again in Scripture, is that our mission is to invite people into a relationship with Jesus, with God's Son, and with God the Heavenly Father. Now, when I was going through this passage, uh, as I'm thinking about different ways to sort of illustrate these points, different stories or people or situations come to my mind. And this one, the one that came to my mind when I read about this idea of having a new mission was uh, the new mission of Frank Brock. Now, Frank Brock, I'm going to put a picture of him up on the screen, was the, the president of uh, Covenant College for 14 years. Before that, he was, I think, the COO at Brock Candy. His grandfather, or his father had started Brock Candy. Well, Frank became a Christian in the mid-70s, along with another group of businessmen that were all living up on Lookout Mountain because of the ministry of the pastor of Lookout Mountain Prez at the time. And so I actually emailed Frank uh, last week and I said, hey, Frank, tell me again sort of about your story of, of coming into a relationship with God. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from the email that he emailed back to me a couple of days later. Here's what he said. First of all, I said this, mid-70s. He said this, I would have self-identified as a Christian. I was convinced that Jesus was God and that the Bible was inspired. However, I was not converted, which is to say I was not a disciple of Jesus. He was not my master or my Lord, right? He wasn't my authority, right? I hadn't given over everything to him. He then goes on to say, I steer away from the word Christian because it's a culturally defined word. I prefer biblical terms like disciple, a follower of the way, a believer. The word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. And in one of those times, it says that they first began to call the disciples Christians at Antioch to culturally distinguish disciples from either Jews or Greeks. Technically, a Christian is an adopted child of Jesus, according to my understanding. He goes on to say, I do fundamentally believe we still follow a person whom we can know as well as or better than the disciples knew Jesus because of the Holy Spirit within us. 
And that all the history that helps us know him better now than when he was perceived as a teacher or revolutionary leader, we are followers of Jesus and we are saved by him. He's creating this distinction, right, between intellectual ascent and really following Jesus. And then he, he ended by saying this. He said, it's important to say that following Jesus did not mean changing jobs or a career for me initially I left the world of business to encourage young people to go back into the world that I left. And here's his final statement. I became a lay recruiter because my conviction is that there are too few disciples in the world. In other words, what Frank Brock was saying there is when I became a Christian, my new mission, I was still working, but my new mission began to be to call people, these young men, these young women who I was working with, to follow Jesus, to be in a relationship with him, and then to let that relationship with Jesus and with God to permeate every other aspect of their lives. My new mission was to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. So my question for you guys out there this morning is this. What is your mission as you sit here this morning? What is your mission, your real mission as you sit here this morning? Uh, Your real mission as you sit here this morning might be career success, right? That might be what your waking thoughts are about. It might be the reason you're in college. It might be the reason that you stay out and work long hours. It might be all about career success. That might be your real mission. Your real mission may be relational success. You know, maybe you're a single person. You're, you're, you're trying with all of your being to have a relationship with someone else. And again, you wake up in the morning. That's what you think about. You go to bed at night. That's what you think about. That's your mission in life. It may be that your mission as a mother or a father, is to provide a safe and healthy home for your children. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But, but chances are in this room, each of us has different things that wake us up in the morning and that sort of give us a direction in life. Almost certainly, whatever that mission is involves your happiness, right? And one of the interesting things is what we read over and over again from theologians, what we read over and over again from mature Christians, is that that happiness that you're probably seeking as your mission is always a byproduct. And true happiness only comes from having a relationship with Jesus, God's Son, and his Heavenly Father. It's exactly why Jesus said in John 17, 3, the night before he went to the cross, now this is eternal life, or this is what life's all about, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus invited the disciples into a new life with him. He invited them into a new life with him that was going to change the way they perceived the world. He invited them into a new life with him that was going to change their authority structure. He invited them in a new life with him that was going to give them a brand new mission. And in the same way that it turned their world completely upside down and changed them forever, in the same way that invitation that Jesus offers you this morning is exactly the same. The call to enter into a new life with Jesus always requires seeing the world through the eyes of his Father. The invitation into a new life with Jesus always requires embracing Jesus and our Heavenly Father as an authority, and it also always means embracing a brand new mission of inviting people into a relationship with the living God and with his Son whom he sent. Let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the invitation that you offer to us through your Son Jesus is always an invitation to new Father, the, uh, the authority structures that we've been embracing fail us, uh, have been failing us. Father, the missions that we've been pursuing have been creating 
unhealthy people. Uh, They've been creating monsters in some cases with us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be our new authority. We pray that we would embrace the new mission that you offer us in Jesus. Father, we pray that, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to enable us to see this world, your world, as you created us to live in it and to see it and, uh, and to interact with it. Father, please give us new life through the power of your spirit and through the work of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.